Just a little note before we get started, we recorded the podcast before a jury in New York handed down an $83 million verdict against Donald Trump in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case, $65 million of which is for punitive damages. Clearly, this jury wanted to send a strong message to Donald Trump, but that came down after we wrapped up our recording. But everything else we said still remains as fresh as the morning. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joanne Banks, Barb McQuaid, and me, Kimberly Atkins Store. Joyce is away this week and we miss her already. You know, there's no better time to get your Sisters in Law merch than right now. You know, the weather's been a little wacky, but depending on where you are, if it's very warm like it is in D.C. today, uh, you can get a T-shirt. If it's a little colder, if you're in another part of the world, you can get a hoodie. We got what you need. If you're tired, you can get a mug to hold your coffee. Just go to politicon.com slash merch and it's something for you, we guarantee. Just click the link in our show notes today. Now on to the show. It's a big one. We will be discussing the latest on Trump's legal woes. We'll also be talking about Texas's defiance of the U.S. Supreme Court when it comes to border barriers and political discord. We'll be taking on the topics of swatting and deep fakes in political discourse. But before we get to all that, you guys, you know, I saw on threads the other day, um, you know, how you sort of have the answer back thing. They ask you to post something. And one of them is like post five jobs that you've had. And I was looking through people's jobs that they've had. And I was thinking about the jobs that I've had. And it made me want to ask you guys, what's the worst job that you've ever had, Barb? I, I want to start with you. I've had, I've had some not great ones, but I, I want to start with you first. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I've been thinking about this, Kim, and I'm not sure I've ever had a bad job. I have loved what? every job I've ever had. I think I've been very fortunate, but you know, even like receptionist and other kinds of things, there are certainly tasks that I haven't loved to do. But even that was a great job because I got to meet interesting people. I wasn't always good at it because someone comes in the door and they say, hello, my name is such and such and I'm here to see so-and-so. And I'd start chatting with them. And then by the time I picked up the phone to tell Mr. So-and-so that Mr. Such-and-such was there, I'd forgotten their name. So I either had to embarrassingly say, I'm sorry, what was your name again? Uh, or... Uh, say, so your, your two o'clock appointment is here and hope that they don't tell, ask you. And who is it? I don't know. It'd be so embarrassing to ask them again. We've been chit-chatting. So I've had jobs I haven't been as good at as others, but I, I can't really say I've had one that was a bad job. Huh. Well, here's Jill has had every job, so I'm sure it was tough <laughs> to try to pick the worst, but Jill, give it a shot. Actually, actually, I'm sort of aligned with Barbara and Every Wait, job all I your had, jobs were good. Pretty good. I, well, I tried really thinking about ones that were bad. And I learned something at every job, whether it was that it's a job I didn't want to do for a long time or forever. But to get a really bad job, I had to go back to like high school summer jobs. And one maybe or two were things that I learned I could never do, and that was pay attention to details. So <laughs> that was something that just wasn't, you know, like recording numbers in a column. That just wasn't for me. But basically, 
Maybe the worst was while I was waiting for my security clearance at Justice, I took a job as a substitute teacher in Montgomery County high schools. And I really was afraid of the kids and I didn't like the idea of teaching. And I was in a school that had um, classes divided by uh, intellectual levels and the ones that were the lowest level would greet you with, ah, we're the bad kids. We're going to cause you trouble. And they sort of did. So I had to learn that I would teach whatever I knew, not what the teacher wanted me to teach because I could engage them that way. But yeah, I really, I've, I found something good in all my jobs. Wow. Although timekeeping maybe at a law firm was like a really talk about a detail-oriented thing that I didn't want to do. It was those six-minute segments. Yeah, I hated that six-minute time clock, too. (laughs) Uh, That's one of the things I do not miss about practicing law. But my worst job was not being a lawyer. Actually, that job was um, great uh, in many ways, including the people that I work with who I'm still friends with. Um, But my worst job, easily, it was a high school job. It was a high school job that I had. It was the very first paying job I ever had in my entire life. And I was a grocery store demonstrator. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, I love it. I did. I did. You like samples? Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I loved it. I loved it. Oh my God, I hated it. So this is, so for people who have not seen these, you know, you go to a grocery store and you see somebody in the corner, they're either handing out coupons or most often they're handing out little samples of something that is sold in the grocery store and you can try it. Yes, and then you also give them a coupon and you encourage them to buy. So there are a lot of reasons why I hated this job. But the top one is that, especially when I was giving out samples, you had to stand next to wherever the item was. And if it it was often a refrigerated (sighs) item, like hot dogs or, you know, yogurt or something. So you had to stand in the refrigerated part of the grocery store, but you also had to wear a uniform. You couldn't put a coat over the uniform. So I would wear like long johns or like sweats (laughs) under the uniform. So I looked like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man because it was so (laughs) cold. Then I had to deal with people coming and like, trying to make a, their lunch out of the samples. And yeah, you know, yeah. even when I oh, would I've been that person. I've been there. politely <laughs> ask them not to do that, or I'd have to get a manager to like, you know, say, hey, Scram, this, this is a sample. Don't abuse the, you know, they would ship us the product beforehand. So I had to like lug it in my car and like take, <laughs> it was, and it paid almost nothing. It was a very thankless job. I don't like being cold. And oh my gosh, I hated that job so much. <laughs> that sounds pretty rough. It's funny that I've had the same job as Joe Weinbanks. My, my I've been a Salvation Army bell ringer. That's a great job. Really? Have you done that? Yes. Oh. I mean, volunteer at holiday time. That's lovely. People are really nice to you. You know, some don't want to give you money and they kind of avoid eye contact, but that's okay. You know, I'm not mm. aggressive about it, but um, it restored my faith in humanity. Many people gave. Well, oh, that's great. Yeah, many people took from me. So <laughs> <laughs> it was the opposite. <laughs> so in my grocery store era, I helped to introduce imperial margarine. Did you and wear a crown? Of course, in the mid- <laughs> I, I actually cut out the imperial sign and pinned it onto me. So I was, oh, remember, I was did. always into pins. Yeah. And I, I, it was just sort of fun to introduce a whole new product. And then I also worked at trade fairs. And one of the products was Latoha Spa Aftershave, which was like, really expensive because it had a gold nugget in it. (laughs) That was, I mean, it was really weird and fun. (laughs) 
you know what, Jill? I really made the best tacos that I've ever made in my life. A real crowd pleaser. And guess how I did it? I bet I know the answer. And it was HelloFresh, wasn't it? It certainly was. My favorite meal is always whichever was the last one I prepared because they are all fantastic. And this week I had three real doozies. I did shepherd's pie, which was so delicious. And I did some ethnic cooking. It was really, really good. And that's because with HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients, really high quality ingredients, and seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. There's no trips to the grocery store, no wasted ingredients, and no menu planning or grocery lists. Count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. Yeah, I find that my daughter is now coming over and wanting to seize my HelloFresh boxes. She said, are you gonna, are you gonna cook that? Can I, that looks delicious. I wanna make that salmon. Oh, I love salmon. So don't give in to recipe boredom. HelloFresh has more options than ever before. Dig into their biggest menu yet with over 45 dinner options to choose from weekly and even more market add-on items that suit any lifestyle. I love those add-ons. Have you guys tried those? They're soups and breads and breakfast items. I have. I just tried their chicken wings. Phenomenal. Mm. Oh, really? The best I've ever had. Absolutely. And although it's listed as just an add-on, it's big enough to be multiple meals. Um, I only cooked half of what they sent and it was a full meal. And so I saved the other half, froze it, and it's going to be fantastic the next time I try it. Well, there you go. This time of year, revamp your eating habits. Enjoy great savings on HelloFresh's wholesome, healthy options with more than 30 calorie smart and protein smart recipes each week. HelloFresh works with your schedule. Their plans are flexible and you can change your meal preferences, update your delivery day, and change your address with a few taps on the HelloFresh app. Imagine getting fresh quality produce from the farm to your kitchen in less than a week so you can enjoy the flavors of the season right at home. So go to HelloFresh.com slash sisters free and use code sisters free for free breakfast for life. That's one breakfast item per box while the subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at hellofresh.com slash sisters free with code sisters free. You know where you can find the link to America's number one meal kit, HelloFresh, in our show notes. Kim, how much does that breakfast cost? It's free. What? I missed it. Free. It's free. (laughs) So let's begin the podcast with the moment we were all waiting for. Donald Trump taking the stand in his own defense. And it happened in the E. Jean Carroll defamation damages case. But wait, he was only on the stand for a few minutes. Jill What do you think Donald Trump accomplished in those three minutes? Well, I think he may have accomplished some self-control. He was limited to three questions, and he was cut off after he answered yes or no. The judge said to the jury, ignore that response. That isn't at issue here. And so that was maybe a good thing. Um, The shortness of the questioning somewhere between three and four minutes has been the butt of a number of jokes that I will not 
Pete here, but I encourage people to go online and find out what those jokes are. And I don't think he accomplished much in terms of changing the outcome of this trial. He tried to say that he believed it was true, what he said, but that's already been determined that it was a lie and that he was guilty of defamation. So I don't know that he accomplished anything at all. I I think it was a waste of time, but luckily it was only three minutes. Yeah, you know, it's funny because he has been saying for so long, you just wait till I show you my evidence, like him and Rudy, right? I I would love to take the stand. And then he took the stand and yeah, it was, remember Marvin, Marvin the Martian. It's like, where's the kaboom? There was supposed to be an earth shattering kaboom. (laughs) There was no, there was no kaboom. So, so Barb, (laughs) we've talked about the tightrope that judges in Trump's legal cases have been walking. They want to keep order in their courtrooms, but they also don't want to feed into Donald Trump's false narratives, uh, especially the one that he is some sort of victim being attacked with all of these legal issues that he really created themselves. How do you think Judge Kaplan in the E. Jean Carroll case has fared in this tight rope walking? I think mostly well, uh, better than most, but I think even um, he let Trump get away with a little more than he probably should have when he took the stand. So Judge Kaplan, uh, you know, kind of a no-nonsense, experienced judge, Um, made it clear that there has already been a decision on liability in this case. Donald Trump, a jury has found, did indeed sexually assault E. Jean Carroll, and he did not, he he defamed her, and those issues will not be relitigated. The only issue in this case is damages. So that was very helpful to uh, make it clear what was going to be at issue and what wasn't. And has mostly reined him in. But even when Donald Trump took the stand, even after saying, here's what you can talk about, here's what you can't talk about, the very first question was, do you stand by everything in your deposition? Yes, I do. That opens the door a little bit because there's a lot of stuff in there. Now, he probably thought that's just a preliminary question. And then Trump jumps in and says things like, uh, or the question is, why did you why why did you say what you said? I had to I had to defend myself and the presidency. And then the judge is like, oh, okay, I see where this is going. I, strike all of it. Strike <laughs> strike all that testimony. And that kind of put an end to it. But I do think it gave his lawyer just enough um, material to argue in closing argument. You know what's in that deposition about his denial that he denies it. So I think he just wanted to be on the record saying that. He denied doing this, even though the judge has already ruled it happened and you can't deny it. So I think it gives Trump the ability to go out and say, you know, I testified on my own terms and I got on the record that I denied it. I think it's all about showing that, you know, he can't be controlled. No one's going to be the boss of him and tell him what to do. Um, I think that's all part of this lawlessness game. I agree with Barb completely. I think that Judge Kaplan allowed phraseology of the three questions that was maybe a little bit broad enough or broader than it should have been. And so he jumped in to that, and that was unfortunate. But I don't think it matters. The jury knows that he is guilty as charged and that it's just a question of what are well, the lot, damages. We should be careful with our language there, Jill. I know you're, you, you You said you don't like attention to detail, so allow me to correct you, though. It's not guilty, <laughs> right, because it's not He's a criminal liable. case. Right, But right, he is right. liable, liable civilly. Thank you very much. Yes. Yep. 
Yes, yes. And, and you know, he, Trump's still going to be Trump. So at one point, uh, he stormed out of the courtroom during uh, closing arguments on the other side, like a petulant child and, you know, in front of the jury. And that's the thing, too. Even though Judge Kaplan told him, OK, said, you know, strike the parts that he said that's non-responsive, the jury still hears it, right? That's We, yeah. we never love that during a trial uh, because, you know, that's very Perry Mason, right? Like it's, you know, Perry Mason will say something shocking and then, you know, the the DA says, I object. He goes, I withdraw the question, you know, and just walks away <laughs> knowing that the jury heard it anyway, right? Yeah, right. So speaking of the closing arguments, Joe, how do you think they went? I thought it was really interesting for a number of reasons. I think that Carol's argument during which Trump walked out was, it was an outrageous behavior on his part. And the jury knew it. First of all, it's him and Secret Service leave. But in addition, the judge said, let the record reflect that he has left the room. Um, As is his right, he doesn't have to be there, but he did it in a dramatic way, returning only when his own lawyer started the closing. But I think that um, E. Jean Carroll's lawyers made some very good points and sort of made a dramatic presentation saying, you know, just picture Carol alone in her apartment and she's getting these horrible letters and just imagine having been assaulted by the Donald Trump because at the time he was not, hadn't been elected, it was many years ago, and then getting threats and she loses her reputation and she's unable to hold a job. And it was a really dramatic, emotional picture, which is what led to the big damages in the Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman uh, case. So I thought that was very good. And Donald Trump, of course, didn't help himself at all. Um, I thought their argument, which included chastising Alina Haba multiple times by the judge because of her exceeding what the proper rules are. And again, I don't know whether that was a Perry Mason dramatic attempt at getting the jury to hear something that was improper or whether it was just she doesn't know what she's doing in a courtroom. But I I thought the slapdowns would hurt the perception of the jury. And I think that there was... um, Nothing in it that would show the jury something that would make them like Trump or let them think that he should be not held liable and not held liable for very big damages. And that was one of the big points in Eugene Carroll's argument was how rich he says he is. And that means that in order for you to make him stop doing what he has been doing ever since this trial started. And she pointed out numerous attempts to, you know, numerous times that he had done that. You have to give him many more punitive damages than he has ever had in order to stop him. And he, you know, for someone who has $10 billion, according to his own testimony, that's going to take a lot of money to make a dent. So I thought the argument of E. Jean Carroll's lawyers was very good and that Alina Habas was not effective. The jury, uh, it's been announced uh, that if they hadn't reached a verdict by 4.30 Eastern time, that they would be sent home for the night. And when I look back at how fast um, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss's verdict was, it could be before they go home. Um, and we'll have to wait and see. And maybe it'll happen before we end this podcast. If not, then 
will know it all right after it happens. And speaking of people who like to play the victim card, this week's uh, this week, Trump's former White House advisor, Peter Navarro, was sentenced to four months in prison, I believe also fined several thousand dollars on Thursday uh, for criminal contempt of Congress. Barb, what do you think of this sentence uh, that Navarro got for refusing to cooperate with the, the House uh, Special Committee on January 6th? Yeah, so he got four months in prison, and I guess it's pretty good. You know, the maximum in this case is 12 months. So it's less than half, though. It is the same sentence that Steve Bannon got. So, you know, when you are judge imposing sentence, you have to think about a lot of things. Um, I want to deter this person from committing this crime again in the future. So maybe some jail time is necessary. I want to deter other people from flouting subpoenas from Congress and know that, oh, if you don't show up, you might go to, to prison for four months. Um, it's there for uh, to promote respect for the rule of law. And there's also an idea that you want to be relatively uniform. So people who commit the crime in similar ways should get similar sentences. So I think four months in light of the fact that Bannon got four months was probably about right. But I don't know, when you think that it goes up to 12 months and how serious this matter was and how blatant their disregard for it was, I thought it was a little a little soft for me personally. I wouldn't mind seeing more. I think the thing that's most offensive to me is that Steve Bannon has not yet begun serving his sentence while his case is on appeal. That is not, a, that is not the normal course. Most defendants, uh, when they have an appeal, they go uh, and begin serving their sentence anyway. I suppose in this case, the judge thought it's kind of a novel issue that could be reversed on appeal. And by the time the case gets decided, four months will have come and gone. And I don't want the person to have to serve in prison if it turns out their conviction gets reversed on appeal. But, you know, guess what? Many defendants uh, see that happen to them every day. They don't get this kind of treatment that Steve Bannon's getting. Yep, special treatment. Joe, what do you think? Do you think the sentence is going to be a deterrent for people who, in Trump world or elsewhere, who have been treating congressional subpoenas like they're optional? I would say for people in the Trump world, there's no stopping them. They will do whatever they think will help him. So I don't know. In terms of fairness, Barb is right in terms of it being proportional to a similar sentence for Bannon. Um, The federal prosecutors only asked for six months, so four is not that far off. But they did ask for a $200,000 fine, and he was only fined $9,500. So I'm a little disappointed in that because I often think that in cases like white collar offenses and for MAGA people, that the financial penalty might be more effective. But honestly, think about people who are not hardened criminals going to jail for even three or four months is a real penalty. So I think it's not a bad outcome. You know, I used to use all drugstore brands, really cheap skincare stuff. And lately I have discovered a wonderful new one that I get online called OneSkin. Barb, have you tried it? I have tried OneSkin and it's fantastic. In fact, support for today's episode, Jill, comes from OneSkin. Now that the holiday buzz is behind us, it's a great time to focus on self-care. And that means taking care of your skin's appearance and its health. OneSkin makes it easy with their science-backed approach to healthier skin. 
Their products are powered by a scientifically proven peptide called OS1. It targets fine lines and wrinkles right where they start, your cells. This isn't just another skincare routine, it's a real science breakthrough. In fact, OS1 is the first of its kind to actually turn back the clock instead of just masking the signs of aging. And at my age, I need to turn back the signs of aging and turn back the clock. They now give us their full line of face care, eye, body, sun, and travel size products. One skin doesn't only promise healthier skin, they prove it. Jill, you look beautiful all the time. <laughs> and you know, it's because of one skin and we are all in. And now for a limited time, our listeners will get an exclusive 15% off one skin products using the code SISTERS when you go to your checkout at oneskin.co. Start 2024 off right and give your skin the scientifically proven love it deserves with one skin. I have to tell you, the travel bundle is such a great companion. I travel a lot and it's so great to know you can just grab it. And whenever you're traveling and you have everything that you need right there, you don't have to think about it. And the formulas feel amazing to apply, especially when you use it on, I, I personally really like the products on my face. My face gets very dry, especially this time of year when the weather changes a lot and it really makes a difference. I will never go anywhere without one skin and we know that you'll love it too. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code SISTERS at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code SISTERS. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. A new year, healthier skin, that's one skin. Look for the link in our show notes. So it's usually Kim who we have to talk off the ledge. This week, <laughs> it's maybe me. Is Governor Abbott's response to the Supreme Court decision allowing the federal government to remove razor wire he had installed along the Texas border with Mexico the prelude to Texas seceding from the Union or starting a 21st century civil war? And what are the consequences of Representative Chip Roy advising Abbott to ignore the Supreme Court's ruling and to tell them to go to hell? I can't believe that I'm actually asking these questions. And maybe we need to have just a very quick overview of how we got there. But first, Abbott put up a barrier in the river and then he was ordered to take that away. So then he put the razor wire along his own land border and the, he prevented any federal officials from going there to remove it when it is already been conceded in some ways by the federal government that they have superiority in terms of immigration and border control. So that's how we got here. So Kim, am I overreacting when he writes a statement that says what it said. And, you know, do they have the powers that he said he was going to ignore SCOTUS and he's asking other states to join him, including states that aren't even border states? Yeah. So I, uh, the legal term I would use for this is bananas, uh, the position <laughs> that Texas is taking here. I mean, it really, 
I suppose if the state secedes, you know, they could they could become their own sovereign and and take care of themselves and give up all the protections that the federal government gives them and benefits. But until then, the answer is no, you cannot. I mean, we have talked about this so many times before. One of the simplest concepts in the Constitution to grasp is federalism. And it's that the federal government is in charge of certain areas and states cannot come in and write rules that are contrary to those federal rules. You just can't. The the federal rules and laws reign supreme over state rules and laws. Texas cannot act like its own country when it wants to and then, you know, accept the, the the protection of federalism on the other hand. So no, this is just bonkers. I think they know good and well in the end of this, they're going to lose legally. But in the meantime, they are just politicizing this. And that's really horrible. As we mentioned before, people have died from that horrific uh, razor wire. Um, the fact that they are digging in this much and defying uh, the highest court in the land as if they have the ability to do that is absolutely bananas. So, Kim, you are completely correct. And when it comes to immigration and foreign relations, it has always been accepted that our relations with other nations are handled at the federal level. The president has the power to receive ambassadors, et cetera. And so stopping at the border is where we have to go. And Barb, Abbott claims a constitutional right to do what he is claiming under Article 1 and Article 4, Section 4. Is he correct? Man, he is so incorrect. And it, 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 as Kim said, I don't think this is even in good faith. This is an effort to wave around the Constitution and say, uh, I am upholding the Constitution and what President Biden is doing is unconstitutional. And if anybody would actually read the language of the Constitution, they would see what a bunch of hogwash this is. The, the provisions that he cites says that uh, the federal government should protect states from invasion, invasion. And it says that uh, if, if a state gets permission from Congress, then it may engage in war uh, to protect its borders, but it may not do so without permission of Congress. So no permission um, has been received by Texas to put up razor wire or do anything they're doing. And also this idea of thinking of, of uh, migrants as invaders, as invasion. Right. Invasion means a, a military conflict that a state right. has Pearl sent. Pearl Harbor. It's, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's military. <laughs> it's, it's soldiers. It's sailors onto your shores. Yes. That's not what this is. This is a humanitarian crisis. There are people coming in and I'm sure they need help and we need a real solution on our border. But the idea that this is an invasion is, it's, it's not only incorrect, there is a former um, government official at the Department of Homeland Security who says, this is the language of white supremacy to talk about, uh, you know, refugees and migrants as part of an invasion. Uh, the idea that we would engage in military exercises to suppress this um, is, is really contrary to the way we think of immigration. And so he's, uh, this is a political stunt, but it's, it's such a dangerous political stunt because it really causes people to be confused. It is a form of disinformation by leading people to believe that it is the, the president that is in violation of the constitution, especially when the Supreme Court has already held that it is the president's prerogative to decide how to enforce 
immigration law. It is not the state. So they lost in court and it's their job to obey the orders of the Supreme Court. So uh, let me just say that you've raised an interesting issue and I think people don't know the language. So I'm going to put in our show notes the language of both Article 1 and Article 4 so that people can see for themselves. Um, And there is an additional factual thing where uh, specifically in terms of what they can't do without congressional okay is enter into an agreement or compact with another state. And this idea that other states are going to join in his efforts is really terrifying to me. He's talking about but civil Kim war. And, I mean, that's, he's, well, that's basically yes. what, he's, is what he's intimating. It's, and it's I crazy. say goodbye and farewell. Um, but in addition to his constitutional claims, Abbott claims a factual basis, which is that President Trump has refused to enforce those laws and has even violated them. The result is, according to Abbott, that Biden has smashed records for illegal immigration. Kim, tell us what the facts really are, since those are not correct. Yeah, that's a lot of malarkey, uh, to use the president's words. Um, <laughs> that isn't the case. It, if I think a lot of people would be surprised to see that actually the most uh, deportations that have happened have been under Democratic administrations. That's in part because the last Republican administration was during the pandemic when um, it was a lot more difficult. Um, But despite all of Donald Trump's big talk about being tough on immigration and bringing in all these new policies, actually it's uh, Obama and Biden. Um, They used to call Obama the the deporter in chief and and Biden (laughs) as well um, have in their policies... um, really been robust when it comes to removal proceedings for people who do not have authorization to be here. Now, of course, there are in excess of 11 million people who are not authorized to be in the United States who can't get rid of them all. Also, uh, there has been a very difficult time. The problem with uh, uh, the border is due largely to Congress and congressional in action. Again, as we record this, there was a, a, a stop-gap border deal that was reached in theory bipartisan. And Donald Trump said, no, no, I want to run against Joe Biden on the issue of immigration. And so now Republicans in Congress are like, yeah, no, we don't want that deal anymore. Trump told us not to do it so that we can blame Biden. I mean, really? This is Joe Biden doing this, uh, Governor Abbott? It's absolute nonsense. Again, it's a very cynical, politically driven and um, cruel uh, approach to this. And it is totally factually incorrect. It is absolutely correct to say that Trump had worse numbers than Biden does. And as to your last point, I'm sure we all have heard Senator Romney's comments saying that it was shameful that Trump would try to kill this bipartisan bill. But Barbara, let me go back to you because you mentioned that the Supreme Court had already ruled And, you know, since 1803, in a famous case, Marbury versus Madison, the Supreme Court got supreme authority to decide these kinds of issues. So how does anything give Abbott the power to take on border control and ignore the Supreme Court? Is there anything? He really doesn't have authority. You know, the the closest parallel I can think of, Jill, is during the civil rights struggle of the 1960s, when the Supreme Court ruled that schools should be desegregated following Brown versus the Board of Education. 
And there were leaders, you know, governors in Alabama and other states in the South. I can say that because Joyce isn't here. Um, (laughs) Other states in the South where, you know, governors stood in the schoolhouse doorway and said, we will not allow integration in our schools. And so, you know, the presidents sent down the National Guard to escort these kids to school to enforce the law. And so if it comes to that, that is what the federal government can do. They can send in, you know, when it comes to the border, they could send in the National Guard, they can send in border patrol agents and, you know, do what they did. Go ahead and cut that razor wire. They have the authority to do that. I mean, if if there should be some sort of um, military conflict, I hate to even imagine it. I mean, the, the, the president gets to decide what to do and can call in the National Guard to put down what would be deemed an insurrection. He he can nationalize the state guard, and that's what happened in uh, 57 under Eisenhower and in 62 under Kennedy. I went to law school with James Meredith, who was the one who integrated uh, and was escorted in by the guard um, in Mississippi. So it was Alabama, I think, and Mississippi. And Governor Faubus stood at the door. I mean, it was a horrible situation. And there was tension whether guns would be drawn and we'd be in a civil war. But Kim, the decision was 5-4. And Texas made all the arguments and they were rejected. Um, So is there anything more to be said about what does it being a 5-4 decision mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, There was no opinion from the, no dissent written that said, here's why we're against this. Yeah. so uh, just a couple things. So this was an order, not an opinion. So sometimes, yes, it's 5-4, but it doesn't mean that the five who uh, were on the side of telling Texas to, that they can't defy, you know, that they, can, that they have to take this border, this border razor wire down. And the four who did not say that would be on those sides if this case was fully presented to the court, argued, and an opinion was, a signed opinion was written. It's just saying that five of them said, yeah, you need to take it down. And four of them did not. And it could be for procedural reasons. It could be, I mean, I'm trying to give an example. Somebody can, um, uh, the court can grant an order, for example, uh, staying a law from going into place, right? Keeping a law from being enforced until the case is finally heard. They can uphold the law and then it goes into place and the justices can rule on opposite sides of that at different times. So I just want to be clear, this was an order about just Texas taking that wall done. But at the same time, there are things to be gleaned from this, even though, as you said, they didn't give reasons for it. Um, And it's who was on either side. And this is a case where the conservative block, the six justices who make up the conservative block, split. You had, uh, and it split in an unusual way. Uh, When we talk about some conservatives sort of being peeled off in some of these cases, we often talk about Chief Justice John Roberts, who was among those who voted uh, to have Texas is taking down. And we usually talk about Brett Kavanaugh, who is sort of like he's conservative, but he wants people to like him. So sometimes he rules on the other side. You know what I mean? This time, the other person who voted uh, to make Texas take the the, the uh, fencing down was Amy Coney Barrett, which is unusual. I think this is one of those um, circumstances where she has little by little since she's been on the court shown that she's not ex- uh, necessarily a rubber stamp and voting exactly as the other conservatives do. Now, often she is, most surprisingly to me. I mean, I will never get over the fact that she joined the opinion, joined the majority in Dobbs 
and did like didn't even say anything, like didn't even defend. She just voted with Dobbs and like, yep, let's let's roll back row. I won't tell you why. You know, that that's crazy. To I will always think that that's crazy. But she was the one in this case that voted to make Texas take that barrier down. So, you know, what does that tell you? I don't know. It's a data point. As we look at all of this, I'm sure that's something that Texas has taken note of as they push forward this, with this battle. But again, I don't. I think at the end, I don't think the court's going to uphold this. Um, they're not going to completely, I can't believe that they would completely ignore the rules of federalism and uh, federal supremacy here. But, you know, it also tells you that there are four justices that would have been perfectly fine leaving with that razor wire staying up, despite the fact that it's been killing people. And their names are Justices Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito. So here's the bottom line question. The statement put out by Governor Abbott, which I will also add to the show notes. Um, Do you think that I should be scared that this is a prelude to secession or writ large if he gets his way? Is this the end of the United States? Remember, President um, Obama often said, we are not red states and blue states, we're the United States. What do you both think on on that? Am I right to be really worried that... um, (laughs) As Barb said, we nationalize the uh, state guard and we have troops fighting each other to make sure that this happens. I think we're a ways from seeing this materialize, but I think you are wise to consider this issue important. I think you are wise to be on alert when a governor is making this kind of inflammatory statement and when a member of Congress is saying that you should violate the Constitution and, and do it anyway. I think that's the kind of rhetoric that slowly erodes our constitution before our eyes. You know, suddenly the day comes and we say, what happened? (laughs) Um, So I I, I don't expect there to be some sort of, uh, you know, rebellion or civil war tomorrow. But I, I do think that it's irresponsible for leaders to speak this way. And I think we should demand that people speak in a way that is consistent with the constitution. Kim? No, I agree with, I, I agree with what Barb says. I'm, I'm not... I associate myself with uh, the gentlewoman from Michigan entirely, except I'm not sure it's as far away as she says it is. I worry that uh, the, the, you know, the threads of our, our union are getting weaker and weaker each day. And I think it's stuff like this that um, can really, you know, make it break apart. I certainly am worried and I hope we don't get to the point where we have to nationalize and order troops to force their way to the border. I hope that doesn't happen and that we can go about our business as a United States. But I'm particularly worried because there are so many states, including non-border states, that have joined in saying they support Governor Abbott. So let's hope that Barbara's slight optimism prevails. Jill, I know the environment is so important to you, isn't it? It really is. And every time I see a plastic bag going out of a grocery store, which I don't in Evanston because we've barred them and you have to pay for even a paper bag. Um, But that's how we make a difference individually. And what if all people, everyone, you and me and everyone else, could change the world with the push of a button? Well, meet Lomi. 
It's the world's first kitchen appliance designed to turn your home into a climate solution by transforming your food scraps into nutrient-rich plant food. Lomi has changed the way you deal with your food waste. It is a truly big innovation in the modern-day kitchen. It's a smart and simple solution to turn food scraps into plant food in just four hours. Lomi transforms plant waste as well into nutrient-rich plant food at the push of a button. You know, I totally change, uh, have changed the way that I cook right now. Like when I chop up a vegetable and I have, you know, the shavings from the the carrots or other little bits of scraps, I immediately put them in the Lomi. I don't even think about putting them in the trash. It it makes me feel really good about the way that I cook. And with Lomi, you'll cut down on the time spent taking out the trash and eliminate bugs and bad odors in your kitchen. And if that's not enough, there's a bonus. You get to feed your lawn and garden with all the natural fertilizer that you've created out of your food scraps. We definitely do that. It's really nice just tossing it out back. And really one of my least favorite chores is taking out the trash and doing that less is fantastic. And our outdoor plants are looking great. And your kitchen will look great too. And so will your lawn, thanks to Lomi's modern and sleek design and how well it works. We love knowing that we're doing our part for the planet. Lomi's new app even lets you track your environmental impact, earn points for every cycle and redeem for freebies from Lomi and other great brands. It's great to get rewarded for doing good. Whether you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just grow a beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash S-I-L and use promo code S-I-L to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to L-O-M-I.com slash S-I-L and use promo code S-I-L at checkout. You can find the link in our show notes. And thank you, Lomi, for sponsoring this episode. Well, disinformation and its effect on democracy is in the news again. You know, I am writing this book on disinformation, so I've always got my eye on these things. But there are a couple of big stories about this. And first, Kim, you wrote in your column for the Boston Globe this week about AI and deep fakes, which is the use of technology to make it appear that a prominent person said or did something they didn't do, such as uh, you talk about fake robocalls making it sound like President Biden was telling voters in New Hampshire to stay home and not cast votes. Um, Man, such a scary and interesting thing. Um, But Kim, you note that the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, has not taken any action to stop deep, deep fakes in political campaigns. And one of the most delicious lines in your column uh, is where you say, you can't spell feckless without FEC. That that was my favorite line in your column. It was excellent. Yeah, Um, sadly, it's true. Uh, Sadly, (laughs) it's really true. Um, But you, you know, you highlight the challenge. You talk about the fact that we have not done anything, but you also highlight some proposed solutions out there. What are some solutions out there that we might be able to use to address these kinds of deep fakes in political campaigns. Yeah, so the issue with this, as is the issue with a lot of things involving technology, is that the law does not keep up with technology. Technology moves at lightning speed and the law kind of creeps along and it's it's always too late. And what is happening is people are exploiting that loophole or that gap in the law uh, by using 
these this deep fake technology, which has just spread at the speed of light. Um, and we've seen it in previous elections, usually with, you know, outsiders sort of making things that are, you know, manipulated by AI and then sort of going viral online. Well, now you're seeing candidates and political parties using AI, including deep fakes, which make it look like a person is either saying or doing things or something that he's not or manipulating it or like, you know, there's stupid examples like Ron DeSantis in his um, presidential campaign launch video. He was standing outside the, you know, wherever the governor stands in Florida and like fighter jets inexplicably flew over him like (laughs) while he was making and they were totally, it's like, why would fighter jets, again, federalism, why would fighter jets be flying over Florida to say, go Ron DeSantis like that, that would never happen. Or, you know, there's one making the rounds where Trump, Trump re-truthed or whatever you call it, an image of himself praying in church. He's got six fingers. Oh yeah, that's a great one. (laughs) It's like, Well, you know, has anyone ever counted? I don't know. (laughs) But sometimes, (laughs) but sometimes they're super dangerous. And I think the example of the audio manipulation to sound like Joe Biden telling people not to vote in New Hampshire is um, a newfangled way. It's an old dirty trick. We've seen leaflets and stuff telling people that their polling places are different or that the election day is wrong. This is like a high tech version of that sort of shenanigans. And they can get worse. You can make candidates say things that they didn't say. And even worse, Donald Trump is now when he says something out loud, like when he confused Nikki Haley for Nancy Pelosi, he's like, oh, no, that's AI. I didn't really say that. That's AI. (laughs) He's like blaming this as if, you know, everything's being manipulated. And at a time where people need to understand what is real and what is not and where misinformation and disinformation is is as dangerous as you pointed out, Barb, this is a big problem. So one thing that I, um, states have been passing laws that give people a civil cause of action if they don't disclose that something in in a campaign ad is manipulated digitally. So it's, it's a disclosure law, just like when you see political ads and you say, I'm Kimberly Atkins store and I approved of this message. Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. sort of that same kind of concept. And that those laws can be effective because they are likely to pass and withstand a constitutional challenge. The problem with banning AI or other stronger laws or criminalizing its use is that the First Amendment uh, has really strong protections of things, including satire, including false uh, statements. So I'm not sure, and lawmakers trying to figure this out aren't sure that any of those laws would withstand Um, that challenge. So one thing that I looked at is, remember that charge we talked about that Donald Trump is facing, the one from the Reconstruction era, interference with people's right to engage in Mm -hmm. um, a constitutionally protected right, meaning Mm -hmm. the right to vote with his attack on trying to stop the certification of the election? I remember. There has has been at least (laughs) one successful prosecution of someone who spread disinformation in the 2016 election. Yeah of being convicted under that. So I think that's something that prosecutors should really look into in the meantime, while we wait for the law to catch up and trying to discourage and deter this kind of behavior. Yeah, that's a really interesting theory, right? Rather than ban it outright, you could say it's a crime because you're interfering with voting rights. Yes. To, to try to fool people this way. Well, Jill, let me ask you, you know, Kim raises this First Amendment issue um, that there is an argument that any regulation of deep fakes that would ban deep fakes, even in political campaigns, would violate the First Amendment. Do you think that's a legitimate position or is there a way, you know, um, 
there's reasonable restrictions are permissible as long as they're narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling governmental interest. Do you think there's some way to um, comply with the First Amendment and still ban these deep fakes? You know, Barb, the First Amendment argument is not frivolous. It's certainly not as bananas as what Governor Abbott is arguing. But I think there are solutions. And of course, Kim brilliantly laid them out in her piece and uh, pretty much in her answer as well. But there are ways to say things are not within the First Amendment. We already know that um, you cannot defame someone. That's our first topic under the E. Jean Carroll case. So if you're doing something that defames someone, there's also a crime of putting someone in a false light. And so if you portray someone doing something horrible, that might fall within that. And there might be a, uh, a way to punish the person for doing that. And I think that states and the federal government are going to have to be very creative in how they deal with this and how they leave the First Amendment, which I strongly believe in, intact, but prevent the fraud on the voters and on misinformation being portrayed in a way that makes it really hard to tell what is true and what is fiction. And that's harder when you think you're hearing the voice of someone and seeing their mouth move with those words and their face be attached to it. I think that the law has to be carefully done and that we're, in the meantime, going to have to rely on, uh, as Kim said, this criminal uh, Ku Klux Klan Act to punish people and on defamation or false light cases. Um, we also have to look at who's going to be liable for these deep fakes. Is it going to be the platform? I mean, we have Section 230 that says it's not the platform. Yeah. Um, we also have, you know, the right of publicity and the right of privacy that could be enforced through uh, civil lawsuits. But I think we may also have to rely on the development of deep fake detection tools, which is one of the problems is you see something and I bet we've all been fooled by watching something, thinking it was real, and then finding out that it was a total fake. Um, this is beyond fair use, so that it's it's not just satire. It's something that's very different than satire. It's not intended to be funny. It's intended to deceive. And I think that's where we're going to have to come to some understanding and make sure that it doesn't continue. And people just have to, I mean, it's it's awful to put the onus on the receiver of this false yes. information, but people have to be really smart and, you know, skeptical and like question where things come from. I know my husband says to me, it's like, you know, I saw this really cute pet video with this dog, but I don't know whether to believe that it's real <laughs> or if it's... Yeah. AI. And it's like, I'm like, well, it makes me sad that you can't just enjoy a nice puppy video, but I appreciate the fact that you are <laughs> a discriminating uh, consumer of information and that you ask questions about it. People need to ask questions about what they see. Yeah. And you know, this idea of, I don't know what to believe anymore, whether it's right. true or it's not true, is something called the liar's dividend, which mm. is you can benefit from that. You know, when Trump yeah. sees something that he doesn't like, he can say, oh, well, that was fake. And people don't know which to believe. So it's uh, it's one of the real challenges in this disinformation environment. Um, well, also relating to disinformation and political violence is a piece I had in the New York Times this week about how disinformation about public officials is inciting people to commit the crimes of swatting 
and to make fake bomb threats. Swatting, of course, is when someone calls the police and falsely claims there's a barricaded gunman or a hostage situation at a person's home in an effort to draw a SWAT team out to respond. And we've had victims who've been Democrats and victims who've been Republicans. I mean, Judge Tanya Chutkin had her home swatted. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene had her home swatted. Um, And it is not just a harmless prank. It is a form of political violence. It's dangerous. In 2017, an unarmed man was was shot by police when a SWAT team showed up up at his house thinking that they were dealing with uh, an armed gunman situation. And it also diverts law enforcement resources from real emergencies to these false claims. So I'm I'm really concerned about this phenomenon. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how we can stop this trend and copycats who, who see this and think it's, you know, it's funny or it's fun to have that kind of power. Mm. Um, I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are, Kim or Jill, what do you think? Yeah, I've been thinking about this. I mean, I think it's the answer in a way is the same or similar to the one before, which is um, in the meantime, and unless or until we get specific laws that adds additional penalty in the case of swatting and to use existing law. I think about how, you know, hate crime legislation, it criminalizes things that are usually illegal in some other way, uh, but it adds a bigger bonus. I think in cases where someone, if it's a misuse of official um, resources or something like that, you get an added bonus if it's meant, if it's done purposely to harm someone else. But until that law catches up, I just think that um, prosecutors have to be, uh, have to use every, you know, tool in their toolkit to prosecute this and to uh, talk publicly about it too. I think you mentioned that in your piece, Barb, to say out loud, we are not going to tolerate this. The the penalties are going to be serious and we are going to make examples of people that do this because it puts citizens in danger. It puts law enforcement in danger. Um, You know, it, it, uh, Data shows that uh, these kinds of attacks, political attacks, are more likely to be done against women and people of color or other people in more marginalized uh, communities and make it clear that they're going to treat this uh, in the, with the utmost seriousness. But yeah. it's, it's a big problem. How about you, Jill? Well, I first learned what swatting was <laughs> on an episode of SWAT. So, it, it, well, that's and a good I couldn't place. believe that it really <laughs> happened until yeah. I started seeing these things actually happening. And of course, it raises the danger level that someone will accidentally get shot. And it is therefore already illegal to falsely report something like this. And right now, I agree with Kim that we need to raise the penalty when there's a political motive for doing this um, or in some other way to make sure that this stops. But in the meantime, I think we have to urge law enforcement to seriously investigate, find the culprit, and make sure they are prosecuted to the full extent of existing laws. That should slow it down a little bit. And obviously, law enforcement also needs to be aware that when they show up to something like this, whose house it is and whether that could be a fake report so that no one gets hurt for no reason at all. Kim, this time of year, my, uh, my face, my lips, every bit of my skin are starting <laughs> to feel like sandpaper. What do I do? 
A full-spectrum skincare routine is just what you need, Barb, because it's the secret to looking and feeling good. And that's why we want to tell you about Osea, especially their Andaria Algae Body Butter. It can help you have healthier, glowing skin all year long. Osea's clean, vegan, and sustainable body care is our go-to and our new year self-care regimen. And we know you'll love it too. Their body butter, first of all, I, I have to just... I can't even describe how good it smells. Mm, it smells so really good. good. I actually have to keep Snickers away from me because she thinks it's food and she will try to lick <laughs> it off the minute that I put it on. But uh, so I put it on and then like like immediately put on socks or something so that she can't get to me. But, but it's really, really great. And it's made with ceramides and Undaria seaweed, which are normally reserved for the face. But when you use it, you'll transform your dry, crepey skin to smooth, soft, and supple skin in no time. It's definitely not your typical cold body butter. I agree with you, but I want to add the new thing that I just tried, which is their Collagen Dream Night Cream. And it is amazing, especially right now in the winter where we've had below zero. It feels so good to soak up your in, on your skin. But you're right, the Andaria Algae Buddy Butter keeps my skin hydrated, and I love how silky it makes my skin feel. Even when the heater's blasting as we need right now in Chicago, it takes the shower experience to the next level too. When you use it after you dry off, but leave yourself a little wet so that it really absorbs, it feels like being transported to the beach for a luxury massage. Osea has been making seaweed infused products that are safe for your skin and the planet for over 27 years. Everything is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. With Osea, you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Start the new year fresh with clean, vegan skincare and body care from Osea. And right now, we have a special discount just for our listeners. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SISTERS at OseaMalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and free shipping on orders over $60. Head to OSEAMalibu.com and use code SISTERS for 10% off. And remember, you can also find the link to your perfect glow in the show notes. And now we have reached what is really, no joke, our favorite part of the podcast, and that is answering some questions from our listeners. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com, or you can tag us on threads or on X Twitter or Twitter X or whatever they call it, um, Wherever you you get your social media, if we can if you can do a hashtag hashtag sisters in law, and we will answer as many of your questions as we can. If we don't answer them on the show when we can, we often just answer them right in uh, the social media feed. So keep an eye out there as well. Uh, first, we are going to go uh, to a question from Arnaldo, who asks: Listening to your conversation and definitions of natural born citizens made me wonder about U.S. citizens born in Puerto Rico. Are they natural born citizens? Generally, both parents are U.S. citizens, but not born in a state. And how does that apply to those born in Washington, D.C.? That's a good question. What do you think, Joe? I love the question. And I actually had to do some research so that I could answer it, even though my gut said, of course they're citizens. 
But the answer is that since 1952, there is a Nationality Act, and that declared that individuals born in Puerto Rico and Guam, I'll throw in, um, on or after 1941 are U.S. citizens at birth. And so they would therefore qualify as a natural born citizen. And the reason we discussed this before was in terms of what are the qualifications for running for president or holding the office of president. And one of them is being a natural born citizen. And D.C. is an absolute yes. If you're born in D.C., it is a district and districts and states are judged the same. So Puerto Rico, D.C., Guam, you are all U.S. citizens if you are born in those physical territories. I will add um, that I believe that is also true for the Mariana Islands and the U.S. Virgin Islands, but it is not true for American Samoa. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it, is a, it is an interesting thing. Uh, but yes, um, thank you for that, Jill. Next, we have a question from Juliet in Portland, Oregon, where we did a live show. We had a great time there. Uh, and uh, Juliet asks, is anyone lobbying President Biden to expand the Supreme Court? If not, why not? Barb? Yes, it's such a great question. And there was some conversation about this a while ago that seems to have died down. One of the things that President Biden did was to appoint this sort of blue ribbon panel of scholars and practitioners to get together to make recommendations about what should be done with the Supreme Court. And I think people thought they might come back with some bold um, recommendations like uh, expanding the number of justices on the Supreme Court, but they really didn't. The closest thing that came was to suggest that the terms be limited to 18 years instead of life so that um, you'd have more turnover. It would take a while to get there, but eventually it would be harder for you know any one party to kind of pack, pack the court. Um, I think the reason is thinking in the long term, uh, you know, in the short term, if President Biden could add three or six justices to the court, he could switch the uh, makeup of the court and perhaps uh, get more favorable outcomes for his political party. But, um, you know, the court is uh, concerned about legitimacy in the long term. And so if uh, justices are added now for political reasons, then you can keep adding them. And if the next president wants to add three more and then six more and three more. And before you know it, you have a Supreme Court with you know 49 justices or something on it um, due to the political whims. So that's the argument. I do think, though, that there is an argument to be made here. And I know, Kim, I think you've raised it, raised it before. There's nothing magic about nine. Nine is happens to be the current statutory number. There have been different numbers in our nation's history. And as the nation has grown, it, it may make sense to have more justices on the court. It used to be nine because that represented how many judicial uh, circuits there were. And each circuit has a justice who handles matters arising from that circuit. And so now that we have 13 circuits, maybe the time has come to have 13 justices. So um, there are, you know, certainly arguments be made about expanding the court. Okay, and our next question comes from Amber, who asks, do you think that E. Jean Carroll will ever receive the money the jury has awarded her? What happens if he doesn't pay? Oh, this is a really, really great question. 
as of the time that we are recording this, we're still waiting to see what happens in that case. But we, she's already been awarded uh, $5 million. There are also other civil cases that Trump is facing. Um, will she get that money? We don't know. So a lot of things have to happen. First, there'll likely be an appeal. Uh, and usually the uh, post-trial appeal process plays out, including appeals about the amount of the judgment, particularly if the penalty, the punitive damages are really high. Usually um, a judgment would not be paid until that entire process is over. Also, there's this thing that Donald Trump loves to do, which is file bankruptcy. Now, in the event that he files bankruptcy, most civil judgment, sadly, can be discharged in bankruptcy, except for a certain category that includes fraud. Uh, civil judgments for fraud. So when it comes to the New York case, it is unlikely that he can get out of whatever that is if he files for bankruptcy. But unfortunately, it might be true uh, if he files for bankruptcy for him to get out of it, he would have to prove that he literally does not, that he cannot pay for this, which I think will be very tough for Donald Trump to try to do on a personal basis since he is personally liable. It's easier to file for bankruptcy as a business and not pay your contractors. It's harder to file for bankruptcy as a person because then you literally have to liquidate your assets, account for them all, open your books. I don't think Donald Trump's going to want to do that. So I don't think that that's the out. I think he will he may just not pay. And then you get penalties for that as well. One of the things I hated most as a civil attorney is trying to actually get the money out of people. It can be dicey. It can take a long time. So E. Jean Carroll is not going to get a big check when this verdict comes down. Um, it will be delayed, but hopefully in the end, uh, they will be able to at least attach. You can get federal attachment, not federal, sorry. You can get legal attachment uh, of property to force a payment of judgment if there's not a bankruptcy. So I hope if he doesn't pay her, uh, you know, she, she gets, she attaches some of his property or, you know, something else that can be used uh, and sold in order to satisfy that judgment. Well, thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Joe Weinbanks, and me, Kimberly Atkins Store. Joyce will be back next week. Remember, you can send in your question for next week by sending them via email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tag us at hashtag sisters in law on threads or Twitter. Uh, you can also, or X, you can also remember to get some swag. You know, we have great sisters in law mugs, t shirts. Uh, hoodies and more. Just go to politicon.com slash merch. There's also a link in our show notes. And also, please show some love to this week's sponsors. You know, we love being able to give this to you without you having to pay a penny for this podcast. And that's because of sponsors like the ones we have this week. HelloFresh, One Skin, Lomi, and Osea Malibu. You can find their links in the show notes too. Please support them because they support us. And please follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, give us a five-star review because you know what? It doesn't just make us feel good. It helps other people find the podcast. So it's like your way of recommending it to other people. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag sistersinlaw. So yeah, and just to make it clear, immigration and foreign relations, which would include our relations. Oh my God. Are you okay? My microphone just fell off. Oh. No, no, my microphone just fell off. Oh. Um, Rather than trying to get it back on, I think it that was so the, the, the conversation was so hot. <laughs> oh my and Jill, god! No, Jill. What? Jill literally dropped the mic. <laughs> <laughs>